0: The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> uh, John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18, uh, page is 74 and 75, New Testament in the pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is... isn't. There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called, in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the, up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted a man was there who had been ill for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition he said to him do you wish to get well the sick man answered him sir I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up but while I'm coming another steps down before me Jesus said to him get up pick up your pallet and walk Immediately, the man became well, and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well, Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, today we're going to be uh,
1: obviously moving into John chapter 5. And I'm going to warn you, now, at the beginning, that um, there are some really difficult topics that we have to deal with in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And at times, it may feel overly detailed and complicated. I'm going to do my best to make sure it doesn't feel that way. Uh, But um, I hope that you can appreciate that what we're trying to do is make sure that we are all equipped to understand what this uh, passage is talking about and the potential complications that this passage presents to us. Um, that will make more sense as we walk through the message this morning, I hope. But I just want you to be forewarned that uh, this may not be the easiest message you've ever listened to. Uh, I'm going to ask you to, to, to really wake up and uh, Squeeze those legs in the seat so you get that blood flowing up to your brain um, and really try to follow me through uh, the presentation this morning, the message. So with that said, let's pray and let's ask for the Lord to give us grace and help so that we can hear what his word is saying to us. Father, we we do recognize our, our deep limitations, Lord. By your grace, we have come to see, uh, some, in some measure, how exalted and glorious you are. Uh, in some measure, Lord, we have been brought to see the wondrous deeds of our God and really have beheld them as expressions of your love and your power and your grace and your mercy, not just to others, but to, to us ourselves. That, Lord, when we read of Jesus healing this man... In Bethesda that same compassion that same mercy uh, is 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 resting upon us even now at this moment because as you've promised uh, Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever and when we read of him here in the scriptures we're reading of him the way he is even now or would you would you please open our hearts and minds to understand the truth of your scriptures to be encouraged by the reality of Christ Father, I pray that you would help us work through these these, uh, complex issues that uh, this passage brings before us. And I pray that we would do it in a way that is helpful and beneficial to us all. Uh, Lift high the name of Jesus, Father. Let the hallowedness of your name be manifest among us. Let thy kingdom come and thy will be done fully on earth as it is in heaven. That's our desire. Lord, we pray that you would begin working that more fully in our own lives here this morning. Uh, And uh, Lord, we thank you. We pray that you'd be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys ready? Yeah. All right. Amen. I like the enthusiasm. That's good. Okay, so uh, first issue, I changed the title. And... That's not uncommon anymore. I change the title very often, it seems. Um, but are you laughing at me or with me? And, um, so the title is Healings at Bethesda. Okay, Healings at Bethesda. The reason why I changed that is because uh, the old title was uh, Healing, Holiness, and Sabbath. And we are not going to get to those other two things today. I was really hoping that we would, but we're not going to uh, and you'll understand why in a minute but I, I do think we want to we want to start uh, with understanding where we're at in the Gospel of John. Uh, we have just uh, finished looking at what is often called the Cana cycle that's uh, John chapter two through John chapter four. that's considered to be uh, really one unit within the gospel of John so if 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 we were uh, turning that into like a modern book or something, we might make John chapter 2 to John chapter 4 one chapter in a book, okay? Because it opens in Cana and it closes in Cana and all of it is directed towards one goal, which is Jesus uh, demonstrating more fully and more clearly uh, the, the uh, glory of his purpose. So in John chapter 2 through John chapter 4, you're seeing examples and illustrations of the purpose for which Jesus came. Okay? And in John chapter 1, verse 17, the, the law came through Moses, but what came through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth. And we find grace and truth being uh, 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 expressed in fuller and fuller ways from John chapter 2 to John chapter 4 in a very peculiar manner. So in John chapter 2, we have Jesus at the wedding in Cana, right? And what does he do with when the, when the wine ran out? He... Gave them an abundance of more wine, representing the abundance of grace that he came to give uh, the world from heaven. At the end of John chapter 2, what is Jesus doing? He's cleansing the old temple, and he ends that section by promising that the time is coming when he's going to make a new temple a new covenant temple. John chapter 3, he's speaking with uh, the quintessential Jew, right? Uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, of the Jewish people of the time. And he tells Nicodemus, you must partake in the glory of the new birth. You must partake in the grace of the new birth if you want to be a member of my kingdom. And then at the end of John chapter 3, what's Jesus doing? He's taking the new covenant bride from the hands of John the Baptist. In John chapter 4, he extends the grace of God that he brought to the Jewish people to the Samaritans. And he's there there in Sychar visiting with this woman at the well. And then by the end of the chapter, he's extending that grace even into Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, all of that is expressing the glory of the purpose for which the Messiah came. In chapter 5, we're transitioning into a new section. In chapter 5, we're transitioning into a section where the focus is not on the glory of Jesus' purpose, but it's on the glory of Jesus' person. Where from chapter 5 through chapter 12, there's one illustration after another of the glory of who Jesus truly is. Why he came is 2 to 4. Who it is that came is 5 to 12. And so... That's primarily what these chapters are about. And it's answering the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Is he just a miracle worker? Is he a great teacher? Is he merely a prophet? Or is he only the prophet that was promised? Well, these chapters in a very unique and powerful way confront us with the reality of who we are dealing with when we are considering Jesus. And running straight through all of these chapters is not only the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, but that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, we're going to see two dynamics at work in these chapters. There's going to be Jesus more fully unveiling the reality of his deity to the Jewish people. More fully revealing to them that he truly is Yahweh of the Old Covenant. He's the one who's been with them the whole time. He brought them out of Egypt. Moses saw his day. The father testified of him in the Old Testament. And then as Jesus, as we see Jesus more fully unveiling his glory of his deity in greater and greater degree, what we also find commensurate with that is the Jewish opposition and rejection of Jesus rising to that same degree. So in other words, the more Jesus reveals about himself to the Jewish people, the more the Jewish people reject it. Okay? Very interesting there. I wanted to launch out in on this, but just just a principle to tuck away. The very means that brings some people to saving faith is the same means that hardens others. Right? Jesus here unveiling his glory, it attracts some disciples. They see it, they believe, they follow him. That same glory is unveiled to the vast majority of the Jewish people at this time, and what is their response to it? They reject him, they oppress him, and ultimately it's going to climax in them killing him. So, that question of who Jesus is is what's being presented to us in these chapters, and another question that follows is how are we going to respond to what we see about Jesus in these chapters? That's the question that confronted the Jews. Of this time. How are you going to respond to what Jesus reveals of Himself to you? And that same question is going to confront us over and over again as we walk through these chapters. Will we recognize and respond appropriately to what Jesus reveals about Himself, or will we, like the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, reject Him? So keep that in mind as we as we come through these chapters now. Now, as we move into chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, in this passage, we're going to start looking at three main issues that we need to consider. And those three main issues were represented by the old title, right? Healing, what? What is it? Yeah, I couldn't remember it. Healing, holiness, Sabbath. That's how catchy it is. I couldn't even remember, right? Healing, holiness, and Sabbath. So the first one is the healing of this man. The second one is the particular application that Jesus makes to this man, holiness. And then the third one is the fact that Jesus chose to do this miracle on the Sabbath. What do those three things reveal to us about the glory of Jesus' person? Now, as I said earlier, my intention was to get through all three of those things today, but... Because there are some really big issues confronting us in this text, we needed to slow down and just look at the first one today. So as we walk through this text today, or excuse me, in the coming weeks, in general, we're going to break it into three headings, which is healings, holiness, and Sabbath. But we're just going to focus on that first one today, uh, the healings at Bethesda. And that's the first main point we're going to look at together, healings at Bethesda. John chapter 5, verse 1 opens with telling us about another feast of the Jews that was taking place in Jerusalem, and uh, that Jesus was making his way back to Jerusalem, or had made his way back to Jerusalem from Galilee in order to celebrate the feast. Now, some people think, just if you're curious, some people think that this is describing another Passover feast. Uh, I don't believe that, because every time John mentions a Passover feast, uh, in the Gospel of John, he actually uses the title Passover." So you see that in John chapter two, verse 13, John 6, verse four, and then chapter 11, verse 55. When it's a Passover feast, John is not, asha- John is not ashamed to identify it as a Passover feast. He doesn't do that here. Now according to Deuteronomy 16:16, 16, 16, there were three national feasts that the Jewish people had to go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate every year. Uh, one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or that's, that's the, the Feast of Passover. Uh, Then you have uh, the Feast of Weeks, which was uh, we also know that as Pentecost. Um, That was the beginning of the harvest season and was also uh, commemorating the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And then you have uh, the third one, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a celebration at the end of harvest time. And it was commemorating God's faithfulness to the people of Israel in light of their wilderness wanderings. So every time they would bring in the full harvest of the land, they would remember the Lord their God who brought them faithfully through the wilderness and had brought them into the promised land. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths was about. Uh, so it seems it's not Passover, but it's probably one of these other two feasts, Feast of Weeks or Feast of Booths. And, uh, now John, John chapter 5, verse 2 tells us that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, and that pool has five porches. Um, There are a lot of details, interesting details in this verse. I'm just going to give you what was interesting to me. And uh, if you don't care, then you just wait, and we'll get to something else in just a second. The Sheep Gate was a small gate that was on the north wall of the city, the old city of Jerusalem. It was part of the wall that had been rebuilt by Nehemiah. And you can actually find the Sheep Gate being referenced two times in Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, it was on the northeastern side of the temple complex. So as you're looking at the temple complex, maybe from above, it would be, it would be right on that, above that northeastern corner of the temple complex. Um, some in this verse see proof and evidence that the Gospel of John was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in, 70, in AD 70. And the reason for that is because it says in this verse that there is, in Jerusalem, um, by the sheep gate, a pool. Well, if if this was post-A.D. 70, uh, not only would there no longer be a pool, there would no longer be a sheep gate. Because it was all destroyed by the Romans in, in 70. So some people see that as evidence that this gospel was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, Bethesda is a Greek transliteration. Greek rendering of a Hebrew word. It's actually two Hebrew words. One is baith and the other is um, um, eshda. Eshda. So baith and eshda. And what it means is house of outpouring or house of mercy. That's what these pools uh, were were called. Now amazingly, archaeological excavations over the last century have discovered uh, this pool. And um, it's currently beneath what is called St. Anne's Monastery. If you want to Google that, you can find an aerial view of St. Anne's Monastery. And you just know that underneath that monastery, that's where the pool at Bethesda, uh, pool of Bethesda is. Uh, these ar- archaeological excavations actually discovered that it's not one pool. It's actually two pools, uh, one pool on the north and the other pool just under it on the south. And between them, there, are, there were four porticos, or four covered porches on either side, and then a covered porch running right in between them. Well, actually, it would be the opposite way. So, one, two, two, three, four, five, like that, if you followed my hand motions there. Now, one commentator said that uh, these, just so you can get a a grasp on the size and the scope of this this pool uh, complex here, uh, one commentator said that they discovered these pools were as large as a football field, and each one of them was 20 feet deep. So this isn't like a shallow wading pool, right? It's a, this is a pretty big, a big place. Now, we learn in John chapter 5, verse 3, that there were a multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, who were sitting around this pool and waiting for something. In fact, I think this is, uh, what these verses tell us is probably one reason why this pool was called the pool of, out, or the, uh, the house of outpouring, or the house of mercy, because of what would take place at these pools. Verses three through four tells us that a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, were waiting for the moving of the water, so they were laying around the pool, just waiting for these waters to be stirred. Uh, that would not be me at that time, I think. I think I'd be swimming in, in the water if I could. I'd be at least having someone put me in that water on the shallow end. But there's a reason why they were just sitting around waiting. Verse 4 tells us it was because at certain times an angel would go down into the pool and stir up the waters. And then whoever would step into those waters first, after the stirring of the water, that person would be made well from whatever disease he had. So you just picture this multitude of sick people, paralyzed people, sitting around, staring at the waters of the pool, just waiting for those waters to move, right? How many false alarms were there when the wind came through and just kind of barely stirred it up? Oh, oh, was that the, was that the angel stirring the water? Somebody get me in. I can imagine that anyway. So all these sick people were waiting around because apparently at certain times God would send a blessing of healing to his people through an angel at these pools in Bethesda or these pools of Bethesda. Now, you can just picture and imagine how desperate these people were. There's there's a hint, anyway, that the man that Jesus is going to heal had been there at least the majority of 38 years. And he's surrounded by other people who are just as desperate, just as hopeless about their condition. The world can offer them nothing, And they have only but to wait at this pool with the hope that God will send an angel down to stir the waters and they will get a healing. There's desperation there. They had no hope but God. No option but to sit still and wait for him to move and to pray and wait for a miracle. And then you also see in this how gracious God was. That at times he would send a blessing and a miracle of healing to these people. He wouldn't heal everybody. But every now and then, he would send upon them a reminder that he had not forgotten them. And that can be the most comforting thing to to remember and realize. When we're not experiencing the healing ourselves, but just to know that we are not outside of the gaze of God. We have not passed out of his mind. He's still very aware of where we are, what we're going through, what we're dealing with, what we're struggling with. Jesus is very aware of that. And blessings like sending this temporary, this this momentary blessing of healing down for one person into this pool was a perpetual reminder for these people that even though the world had passed them by, God still knew who they were. He still knew where they were. as I said, that's probably why this pool was called the house of outpouring. Because um, this is where God would often pour out a blessing by an angel for one providentially uh, blessed sinner. But now there's going to be a greater miracle and a greater outpouring of God's grace that's going to happen at this pool. When Jesus singles out this one man... A man, verse 5 tells us, was suffering from an illness for 38 years. Jesus comes alongside of him and heals him, but he doesn't heal him by means of an angel stirring the waters. See, here the blessing of healing is coming by God himself drawing near to this man in the flesh, entering into his suffering, entering into his trial in a way that God never had done before. It's no angel now. It's God himself who has come to pour this blessing out on this man. And he doesn't doesn't do it uh, by means of stirring up the waters, but he, just as he did with the royal official son, here Jesus comes healing this man by the power of his own command. Get up! (laughs) That's the command. Get up! And Jesus' command, what he was commanding the man to do, Jesus equipped him to do. He healed him. Now notice something that it says in verses 8 and 9. This wasn't just a a, a momentary healing. This wasn't just an incomplete healing. This was a real full healing of this man. It says that the man immediately at the command of Jesus, he immediately got up and was able to carry his mat and walk walk around on his own. So that means that there was no physical therapy time. There was no recovery period. There was no building up of the muscles that had atrophied for over 30 years. There was no strengthening of the joints that had just been laying there stiff for 38 years unused. Jesus spoke the word of healing to him, and he was completely and utterly healed in a moment. And what's going to become important next time, not next week, because I'm gone for two weeks, what's going to become important in three weeks is that that man immediately began praising God by carrying his mat around, even though it was the Sabbath. That's going to become an important detail when we get there. But here Jesus, he speaks, and immediately this man was made well, and then verse 13 tells us that immediately Jesus withdrew from him, even before the man could realize who it was that had healed him. Now the question in my mind, as I've wrestled through this text, is why didn't Jesus heal everyone at the pool like that? Did Jesus have the ability to heal the entire multitude of sick and invalid people sitting around that pool? Yes, he did. Did God not have the the power To send an angel down with a blessing that would have healed everybody, regardless of whether they had gotten into the water or not. Yes, of course, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He holds our very very breaths in his hand. The hairs on our head are numbered by him every day that you and I will experience were foreordained for us and were written out in God's book before there was even one of them. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that we go through in our lives. So why, including these people, so why did he not send the blessing of healing upon them all? I think this can be especially difficult for us to wrestle through in light of the fact that when he chooses not to do healings or miracles like this, we are the ones who wind up suffering for it. When Jesus chooses not to heal my son, you think it's easy. No, it's not easy to bury your child. Does that mean Jesus didn't love me? Hard-hearted towards me? You've got some sickness. Jesus isn't healing you of that sickness. He healed someone else. He's not healing me. Does it mean he doesn't care? It can be very hard for us to work through issues like this, but... I think what we have to keep in mind is, even in something like here in John chapter 5, in the context, there are at least two reasons why Jesus does not heal everybody sitting around that pool. I just want to give you my thoughts on that, and then we're going to move into a very difficult issue. At least two reasons why I think, in the context, why Jesus didn't heal everyone sitting around that pool. Number one, and most important for us to keep in mind, is that Jesus didn't heal everyone sitting around that pool because it was not yet time for the fullness of his healing power to be unleashed. Jesus didn't heal everyone sitting around that pool because it was not yet time for the fullness of his healing power to be unleashed. Jesus talks about when that time is going to come in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says to the Jews... The hour is coming, it's not yet, but the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and they will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of condemnation. So there, Jesus says, there will be a day when all sickness and death and sorrow and pain will forever be banished by the powerful word of his own mouth. He will speak his word. Those who hear his voice will live. Even those who are in the grave. Even those who have suffered the full ramifications of the effects of sin that you and I go through in this life. Those who have been brought down to the grave. Jesus says a day's coming when my power will be greater than all of that. Yeah, amen. You should say amen to that. But you got to pay attention to something very important that he says there. That hour is not now. That hour is coming. There's a day coming when every believer will experience the resurrection of life at Christ's command. But that day will not be experienced until the determined hour comes for Christ to usher in the fullness of the new heaven and new earth. You see that, for example, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. That's where we we learn that there's a moment coming when God is going to wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people and he's going to wipe away every cause behind every tear. And when is that going to take place? That's going to take place in the new heaven and the new earth. When the old heavens and the old earth pass away and are no more and are replaced. See, all of our struggles... With illness and sickness and death and sorrow and pain, all of our struggles with life as it is in this fallen world are nothing but our longing for the age that Jesus Christ is going to usher in. We struggle with the way life is in this world and we get so angry and anxious when it doesn't turn out the way we want it to. All we need to, we need to realize that in that moment, all that is, is a longing for a greater reality and a greater experience of life that's going to come in the age that's coming. You and I long for the glory that Christ is going to bring one day. You and I long for that glory to be the here, in the here and now. Nobody wants to bury a loved one. Nobody wants to get sick. Everyone feels the struggle in their own soul when it seems as though the Lord is ripping your life apart. We all feel that. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus chose to give us everything that we long for, everything that our hearts desire, the the kind of life that you and I know we were meant to live, but we're not living right now. If Jesus gave us everything that we longed for in life right now in this world, what would be the result? There would be a lot of self-centeredness. Would we ever want to leave this world? Would we want anything to change if Jesus gave us all that our hearts desire here and now, in this life, right now, in this world as it is? If Jesus gave it all to us right now, where would be our longing for the world that's to come? This is what C.S. Lewis said in his his, uh, book, uh, is it the problem of pain and suffering or something like that? You don't remember the title? problem of suffering maybe, problem of pain. In that book, he, he, he's dealing with the issue of evil and suffering in this world and what, what good purposes of God might be behind those. And he says, pain is God's megaphone that's being used to arouse a sleeping world. He says, if we never suffered and we never struggled and we never had any experience of pain in this life, what would ever cause us to look above this life and try to find the answer somewhere else? Nothing. The hour for healing and the the hour for our complete makeover, when when all the sick people laying around that metaphorical pool of Bethesda, when all those sick people are going to be made well, that hour is coming, but that hour is not yet. And so until that hour comes, what are we to do? We're to obey 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and set all of our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us on that last day. God doesn't order our pains so that we would question his love and devotion and compassion for, towards us. He orders our pains so that we would learn how to look beyond this life and the things that are in this world and the here and now and look to him as our only hope, look to him as our answer. That's one reason why Jesus didn't heal everybody at Bethesda, but maybe a second reason, and probably the most important, is that Jesus didn't heal everybody there at that pool in Bethesda, uh, pool of Bethesda, because his purpose was not to focus on the miracle itself. The miracle that Jesus performed at that pool of Bethesda was done in order to draw our attention to something else. That's why in chapter 5, or that's why in verse 13 of John 5, it says that even the man who had been healed did not know who had healed him because Jesus had withdrawn from him. The reason for his withdrawing from them is because there was a multitude of people that were in that place. If Jesus had stuck around after that healing had taken place, um, he would have... uh, Uh, The the crowd would have surged upon him, longing for their own miracle and longing to experience their own deliverance, but entirely missing the point behind it. See, the most important part of the miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter 5 was not the miracle itself or even restoring this man's life. It is what that miracle teaches us about Jesus. That's why it's so important in John 5 9, where it says that this miracle took place on the Sabbath. That's the point. Jesus performed this miracle on a certain day in order to teach us something about himself. And we're going to get to that in a couple weeks. Now, I believe there there are two reasons for that miracle. I've already made them known to you. One is for holiness for the man. That's the focus of this man. Why Jesus healed this man? Well, for his sake, it was for the sake of holiness. But there's another purpose for Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath, and that is directed towards the Jewish leadership. It's to show them who Jesus truly is. Now, we're going to get to that. But before we can get there, we need to deal with an issue that verses 3 through 4 present to us. i I've determined that I'm no longer going to ask you, are you guys with me? I don't like how condescending that sounds. Um, are we ready to look at a very difficult issue? Okay. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. If you're reading from the ESV or the, the English Standard Version, or if you're reading from the New International Version or the New Living Translation or the Revised Standard Version or another copy of the scriptures, you may notice, or you may have already noticed, that those translations do not contain the last half of verse 3 or the entirety of verse 4. Now, it may have it in a footnote somewhere on the bottom of the page or in the center column if you have references. It's showing that other manuscripts contain this verse, but it's not in the text. Now, if you're reading from a King James version or a New King James or a New American Standard Bible or the Legacy Standard Bible, you will see that in these translations, they do have those verses present, even though some of them may be bracketed. What's the deal with that? Why do some of our English Bibles have those verses and others of our English Bibles do not? You look up online and you say, where did John 5, 3, and 4 go? And what you're going to be directed to are multiple videos on YouTube telling you that it's a giant conspiracy, that the devil is behind all modern translations and he's trying to cut verses out of the Bible to make us lose our, our uh, confidence in the scriptures. Well, demon translations, right? Like the ESV. <laughs> no, the, the, the issue is actually far more complicated than that. If that were what was going on, that'd be very easy to sift through. <laughs> um, but it's actually, it's actually much more complicated than that. The, the difference in our English translations of the Bible between those that do and those that do not contain these verses is what is known as a textual variant. Now, I know that what I'm about to do is something that pastors are urged and warned not to do in a sermon. Um, I'm going to address this issue of this textual variant and hopefully help us think through it. But even as I was preparing to to, uh, uh, preach this passage, I. I came across an article that said the best way to handle this passage is not to address the textual problem, right? Because you don't want to confuse people and you don't want to shake their confidence in the scriptures. And so if you as a pastor stand up and you say, hey, some of your Bibles have these verses, others of your Bibles don't, the people are going to be left wondering, well, how do I know which is which and how do I know that I have the word of God? Well... Please believe me when I say I have no desire to see your faith shaken, and I have absolutely no desire to confuse any of you. And that's why we need to talk about this and not ignore it. See, because if we don't address issues like this in the four walls of the church gathered, then as a shepherd, I'm leaving you exposed to the danger of even greater confusion And I'm leaving you unprepared to answer objections that the world is going to give you. When you come to them saying, this is the word of God, this is what God expects from us, this is Jesus and how God has revealed himself to us, the world's going to look straight back at you and say, wait a second. If that's your standard of authority, how do you know you can even trust it? Your own Bibles don't agree about what should and shouldn't be in the Scriptures. And you're going to come to me and tell me that I should listen to that book? You don't believe that this is an issue? You've never experienced that? That's because you're not doing enough evangelism. I can't count how many times out on the street, 15 years ago, how many times out on the street I met someone. I was talking with them about Jesus, and they brought up some issue related to textual criticism and gave it as a reason why they don't believe in the gospel. I remember, uh, I remember in Indianapolis, Super Bowl, two thousand. 12, Indianapolis. I was down on the streets for four days sharing the gospel, preaching with people, interacting with all kinds of different people. And one night I was down there and there was this group of, had to be like freshmen or sophomore, college age girls, just ditzy as could be, not, not there for, they're not academic in any way. They're not there for any reason except to party and have a great time. And I'm starting to engage with them concerning the gospel. One of them in the midst of the group spouts out and says, I don't believe that book. And I said, why not? She says, well, don't you know that the last part of Mark isn't even in the earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament? You can't trust what's in that book. It's been changed over time. Thankfully, I had an answer for her. Today, there are men like Bart Ehrman, who is a a world-renowned apostate from Christianity. He pretty much does nothing but write books about why you can't trust the Bible on a textual critical level. Why the manuscripts were all corrupted, why the message has changed over time, how Jesus became God, misquoting Jesus, all these kinds of things. Bart Ehrman has written extensively on that. And he is actually probably at the root of of all who are responsible for shaking the faith of so many people who go and study at college campuses today. They're all using arguments from Bart Ehrman. Let me ask you a question. If you were out on the street witnessing to somebody, maybe, maybe a friend, uh, maybe an unbelieving family member, maybe just some stranger that you meet in the store, and you start sharing with them the truth about the gospel, and they turn to you and say, I can't believe what you're saying about the gospel because you can't even know what should be and what shouldn't be in this book. What's going to be your response? How are you going to interact with a person who says, how can you even know that you can trust the Bible? Hasn't it been corrupted over time? Now if, if if we are well let me let me say this first there may have been a day not too long ago when a pastor could pass over an issue like this and have no worries about whether his people would be shaken in their faith or not. That day's not today. If you're longing for yesteryear and a hundred years ago and the simplicity of Christianity that existed back then, that's not going to happen today. You, as a Christian, have to rise to the challenge and deal with very difficult issues that your grandparents never had to deal with. You, sitting in the pew, have to be a textual scholar if you are going to present the truth of the gospel to people in a meaningful way today. I'm not saying you have to know everything. But there are some things you have to be aware of and you have to be prepared to deal with if you are going to give a reasoned defense for the hope that is in you. Are you prepared to do that? Am I prepared to do that? Now, if, it's, if this church is built around an us-for-no-more type mentality then maybe we don't need to worry so much about how to deal with this passage. In fact, if that is our mentality, then we have a much greater concern on our hands. And that's whether or not we're actually Christian. If you have no desire for the lost to come to the saving knowledge of Christ, then my friend, your heart is not right within you, and you need to have honest dealings with Christ. If you don't have a love for Jesus and a desire to know Jesus that compels you to share Christ with the lost, then you don't know Him. Most who don't have a concern for others to be saved don't have that concern simply because they don't know the glory of salvation for themselves. Just think about it. You watch a movie that you love. You watch a movie that was so amazing. Or you read some book that just astounded you. What do you start doing immediately whenever you start meeting people? You go to work, you start telling them about the movie. You start telling them about the book. You start praising how wonderful it was. And you start telling them, hey, you really need to watch this. You really need to read this book. It was so helpful to me. It was awesome. Is that how you start your day with Jesus? You've been so enamored by the glory of Christ revealed in the word, that just when you, you're so shaped and so impacted by it, that as soon as you walk out the door of your home, you meet somebody and it's almost this, this, this compelling force within you that's causing you to try to find some way to tell them about Jesus and say, man, I was with Jesus this morning. He was awesome. He was teaching me about this. He was conforming me more to his image, dealing with this sin, strengthening my faith. Dude, you've got to come to Jesus because Jesus is your only answer. The reason why most people are not driven like that, most Christians are not driven that way. To see the lost come to know the saving power of Jesus Christ is because they themselves don't know it or they have not been vigilant in guarding their hearts and they have forgotten their former cleansing. But, okay, that's a parenthesis. Well, let, me, let me say one more thing here, parents. You're responsible to train your children to deal with issues like this and to help them stand in a world of radical skepticism. If you are not training your children how to walk in the fear of the Lord in relation to an issue like this, how do you expect them to stand when they go to college and they've got some professor over them that's radically atheistic? and longs and craves for any reason not to believe in the truth of the gospel. How are you going to prepare them to stand in a time like that when you're not willing to deal with issues like this and help them know how to work through it? This is very important. And I hope I haven't beaten a dead horse here, but I I want you to get the point that we can't ignore these kinds of issues. We have to deal with them. And if I'm going to be a faithful shepherd to you in this day and age, I've got to force you to deal with them. All right? All right. If we're serious about engaging the world with the gospel, then it will help us tremendously to understand how to address these kinds of questions like, what about John 5, 3, and 4? All right. This passage is one of the two major textual issues that we're going to have to deal with in the gospel of John. The other one is at the end of chapter 7. We're going to get to that when we get there. Uh, 10 years or so, something like that. Uh, Those of you who were present, though, for the Sunday school class I did on this, uh, you may remember what a textual variant is. A textual variant is any place in two manuscripts or two copies of the same work, it's any place where those two copies differ. Okay? So before things like the digital files in the internet, before photocopiers, and even before the printing press, the only way that people could make copies of a book was to write that book out by hand. That's a long, arduous, painstaking process, and the fact is that copying any book by hand will result in what are known as textual variants, variations between the copies where they disagree with one another, If you don't believe me, just go home and try to copy out the Gospel of John by hand for yourself. By the end of the process, sit down all day long and just do nothing but write like what they did in those scriptoriums. You just, somebody reading the Gospel to you, you writing it down as you hear it read, you do that and you tell me if at the end of it your copy of the Gospel of John looks exactly like the one that was used to copy it from. It won't be the case. Any handwritten manuscript is going to differ in some way from the manuscript from which it was copied. Now, most of those differences are gonna be differences in spelling, they're gonna be differences in word order, Uh, they're gonna be uh, differences that make no impact, have no impact whatsoever on the meaning of the text. However, some of those differences may be significant. Like maybe you skip over an entire line when you're copying that Gospel of John and you miss a whole section of truth, such as verses three and four of John chapter five. The reason why some of our English Bibles have these verses and others do not is because there are some Greek copies of the Gospel of John that do, and there are other Greek copies of the Gospel of John that do not contain these verses. So it's not a conspiracy on the part of some to remove certain Bible verses from the Scriptures, the question that textual scholars have been trying to answer is this. Which one of these readings is the right reading? In other words, which one of these readings is, is the way that John wrote the gospel? Did John write verses 3 and 4 in John chapter 5? Or did John not write 3 and 4 in John chapter 5? That's the question. Oh, I just want to ask it right now. Are you guys, you, you Okay. I know, I know I'm pushing you on this issue, but I hope it'll be helpful. Let's, let's walk through this. There are some good reasons why some scholars think these verses are not original to the Gospel of John. In the earliest manuscripts that we possess of the Gospel of John, these verses are not present. So time-wise, in the earliest copies of these manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John, these verses are not there. Going uh, back to P66 and P75, if you want to know, those are kind of the two main uh, texts that are pointed to, to say that those date from around 200, and um, they do not contain these verses. Adding to that, verses 3 and 4 have at least four different variations in the way that they're written in the manuscripts that do contain them. So for those reasons, some scholars say they don't belong in the Gospel of John. Well, if that's the case, then the question is, how then did they get in the book? How did they get in the Gospel of John if John the Apostle didn't write them? The most common explanation for that is that basically this was a marginal note that was written in the side of someone's Bible that eventually made its way into the text. Okay, So maybe, uh, just as some of us do, we we write in the margin of our Bible when a preacher says something good or we have a good thought, we write it out in the margin of our our Bible next to that passage. Well, that practice has been going on for almost 2,000 years. Believers have always done that in their Bibles. And it's a practice I would highly encourage you to adopt. You should write in your Bibles. You should make notes when they're important so you remember them. Now we can imagine maybe someone was visiting a church somewhere, or maybe someone was studying somewhere close to Jerusalem and they came across some text that was dealing with this practice where this angel would come down and stir up the waters and, 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 uh, uh, and, and, and the first one in would get healed. And they hear that and they're like, wait, I didn't know that that was the background behind what's going on in John 5. So what they do, they take that story and they write it over in the margin of their Bible so that from now on they can always reference it. It, it would serve like a commentary saying this is what's going on in John 5. This is what used to happen. So someone writes it in the margin of their Bible. What happens when someone else down the line, a couple hundred years maybe, stumbles across that copy of the Gospel of John and wants to make a copy of it for others? You get to John chapter 5, you find this marginal note written in the side, and you have, to, you have a difficult decision to make. You have to answer, is this marginal note originally part of the Gospel of John? Or is this something that someone added later on just as an afterthought? Right? Because what would happen sometimes when a scribe would make a mistake, if he would cross, if he would pass over a certain line in the Gospel of John, he would write that line in in the margin of the text. Because there was no room to put it in the text, he had already skipped over it. So he would write it over in the margin of the text. Now you come across a text that's written like that, and you have to make a decision if you're going to make copies of it for others. Was that part of the Gospel of John or was it not part of the Gospel of John? The good news of church history is that Christian scribes were very conservative. And every time they came across something in the text, even in the margin, they would put it into their copy of the scriptures out of fear of losing some of God's word. So that's probably, these scholars say, how these verses came to be in the Gospel of John. That's what the majority of Bible scholars believe. However, there are other scholars who disagree with that, and I would be in their camp. These scholars point out that even though a a very few early manuscripts do not contain these verses, the fact is the majority of all of our Greek manuscripts do contain these verses. Now, in itself, that may not be much of an argument, but when you consider the fact that the majority of manuscripts are passed down to us by the majority of the church, Now you have an argument that says the majority of the church viewed these these verses as legitimately a part of the Gospel of John. And in those areas where the church had the greatest presence in history, we find that the majority of the copies of John that come from that area do contain these verses. Now adding to that, these scholars will also point out, that there were many of the early church fathers who, when they would quote this passage, would include verses 3 and 4 in that quotation. So, for example, you have, pe- you have men like Didymus, Cyril, Chrysostom, Hilary, and most importantly, you even have a man named Tertullian, who around the year 197, in his book on baptism, quoted these verses verbatim in that book. Now that's not a Greek text of the New Testament, but what that does tell us is that by the year 200, which is the year that the earliest manuscripts we have that don't contain the, those verses, the year in which they were written, by the year 200, people like Tertullian knew that those verses uh, were knew of those verses and, and believed that they were part of the Gospel of John. Does that make sense? Okay. So, as I said, that's not a Greek manuscript of the New Testament from the second century, but what that does tell us is that by the second century, in the second century, these verses were well known and were widely known at that time. So if we're going to discern whether these verses belong to the gospel of John or do not belong to the gospel of John, the testimony from history gets a little fuzzy. What's the earliest reference to those those verses not being there? Well, it comes from the second century. What's the earliest reference to those verses being there? Well, it comes from the second century. Which one's going to help us determine whether it's in the Gospel of John or not? So far, neither one. So in order to answer the question, we have to start looking at the text itself. In my opinion, the most powerful argument for believing that these verses were originally part of the Gospel of John comes from the Gospel itself, okay? Now, follow me through this. I don't want to be too too complicated here, but in what we've already seen in the Gospel of John, you've noticed that John makes great effort to explain things to us with unnecessary details. Details that do not impact the, 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 the message that's being communicated to us by whatever John's writing, right? So for example, in John chapter 2, we're told why Jesus was at this wedding in Cana and why his disciples were there. It's because they had been invited. Now, that detail doesn't need to be there for, in order for us to understand the meaning of the passage. It's just there. Or uh, at the, uh, further on in that passage, we're given specific details and descriptions about the water jars that were there, the specific number that were there, the purpose for which they were there, and how many gallons each of them held. Why do we need all those details in order to know what Jesus did in changing water to wine at, at, at the wedding in Cana? We don't. It's an unnecessary detail that's put there by John. In John chapter 3, we have John meticulously describing Nicodemus to us and uh, stating very clearly that he came to Jesus by night. That That doesn't have much effect on the meaning of the passage. John chapter 3, verse 23, why is John the Baptist baptizing in Anon? Well, because there was much water there. We don't need to know that there was much water there if John the Baptist was baptizing there because evidently that means there was water there. It makes no difference on the meaning of the passage other than to reinforce the thought that there was a lot of water there and that's why John was baptizing there. You see the same thing in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Why was Jesus going up to Galilee? Well, because he was being persecuted by the Jews and it was before John the Baptist was put in prison. You know, John doesn't mention John the Baptist being put in prison in the rest of the gospel, and yet here he mentions it was before he was put in prison. Why that detail? Or you even find in John chapter 4, verse 28, when the woman from Sychar went back to the village to tell all the other people that she had found the prophet, what does what that little detail that John tells us happened? When she left, she left something behind. What was it? Her water pot. John doesn't return to talk to us about the meaning and significance of that. He just makes the statement, and there it is. It has no bearing on the meaning of the text. Now, here's my point. If John chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 were not original to the gospel of John, then important details that explain to us what is going on in this passage are absolutely missing from the gospel. And that is uncharacteristic of John. John labors to give us details that make no difference to the meaning of the passage. Do you think he's not going to give us details that explain to us what's going on in the passage? So, for example, in John chapter 5, if if the text ended at the first part of John chapter 5, we would learn that there was a multitude of sick people there around this pool. John chapter 5, 6, and 7 would tell us that there's some connection between being healed, the waters of the pool being stirred, and needing to be the first one in. But there's no explanation about what that means. We would be left in the dark. Very uncharacteristic of the Apostle John in in the way he's written his gospel. So without verses 3 and 4, there'd be no explanation about what's going on. Now some people will say, well, everyone living in Jerusalem would have known what John was talking about when they read this passage in the Gospel of John. Well, that is a great thought, and I want to acknowledge that as a great thought, however, What people who who, uh, put that thought forward are forgetting is that the Gospel of John was not written to Jews living in Jerusalem. The Gospel of John was written to Gentiles who maybe had no clue about things in Jerusalem. That's why throughout this Gospel, John is constantly describing the practices of the Jews that were taking place in Jerusalem or even translating Hebrew words and phrases into Greek so that the Greeks could read and understand what they meant. John wasn't writing to Jews in Jerusalem. He was writing to people who were not in Jerusalem. So it's especially that last point. I know, I know, I know, I know. Stay with me now. It's especially that last point. That's why I believe that these verses, verses 3 and 4, are original to the Gospel of John. Now, why might they have been removed, right? Those who say they're not part of the Gospel of John have to answer the question, why were they inserted? Well, if I'm going to say I believe they were part of the Gospel of John, I've got to answer the question, why were they taken out of some manuscripts? Well, I'll confess to you, I don't know. But I have a couple thoughts. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe the manuscript that a scribe was copying from happened to be, each line happened to be just as long as the second half of verse 3 and the the totality of verse 4. And he just accidentally skipped over that line and kept copying Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe there was, as some speculate, maybe there was someone who was converted out of like a a Greek philosophical uh, way of life prior to coming to Christianity and he comes across this passage and all of a sudden it's troubling to him because he can't affirm things like angels descending and stirring up waters and God granting a miracle that way to the first person who gets in. So it troubles him so much that maybe he takes it out of the gospel. There were some that do speculate that. I'm not going to give a definitive answer, but I do believe that it's part of the Gospel of John, and I'm not going to condemn anyone who disagrees with me in this room either. I just want you to understand why I believe it truly does belong within the Gospel. Now, as we close, let's end on why this is what we just did, why that's so encouraging. What if you and I, the church today, the only manuscripts of the Gospel of John we had ever received from church history were two manuscripts, one manuscript that contains these verses and the other manuscript that doesn't? How would we determine which one was original and which one wasn't? It would be impossible. You couldn't do it. You couldn't argue through it because you've only got one witness against another witness and there's no one else to tell you what happened. We need to be honest with the history of God's word. We need to be honest with how it has been passed down to us. There are textual variants that we have to deal with. We've received God's word through copies of copies of copies over millennia. And we acknowledge that there are some difficulties we have to work through. But the glorious part of that is that Jesus is the one who said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Jesus is the one who said that not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law until everything is completed. You know what a jot and a tittle is? Those are little tiny marks that distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. Just super minuscule things that are there in the text. Jesus says not a single one of those is going to pass away until heaven and earth is all completed. And the history of our text proves that to be true. See, the same God who inspired His Word is the God who has preserved His Word. And yes, for some reason, God has chosen to preserve it in such a manner that we have things like textual variants. But the good news about the, the sheer... The sheer mass of information that God has preserved through us through the history of the church is that when we have a textual variant, we have a plethora of information that we can consult in order to determine which one is legitimate. We've got 5,826 copies of the Greek New Testament in Greek. Last, time I, uh, last number I saw, that's from 2018. So we probably have more than that now. 5,826 Greek manuscripts. We've got another 20,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament from the early centuries of the church that were copied into other languages around them. And, and, and all throughout Europe and, and northern Africa and throughout the Middle East, we have all kinds of testimony concerning what God's Word has to say to us. And when we compare everything together, the differences between all the manuscripts amount to be about, 99, or about 0.5%. So there's 99.5% agreement across the most widely divergent manuscripts that we possess as a church. God has preserved his word for us. There's no reason for us to doubt and question and speculate as to what God's word says to us. Bart Ehrman makes a claim that the gospel has been changed over time. You know the good news about the way God had his text explode all over the known world as soon as the church was founded. You know the good news about that? it shows us that no one entity was in charge or in control of the dissemination of that text. That means no one could have changed it. If, if, If it had been changed, what would we find in the history of the manuscripts? Well, we would find the majority of manuscripts agreeing with one thought, and we would find some manuscripts not agreeing. But they wouldn't all be conformed to the same message. God has been so wise in the way he has passed his word on to us. And I know I'm geeking out here. This is, a tech, this, is a, this is something that I actually stay up until 1 and 2 o'clock in the morning reading about. Right? I love textual criticism. I don't expect you to love it the same way I do. But what I want you to come away with today is confidence that God has given us his word in such a way that we have no reason to doubt its legitimacy. When we have a question, we can come back to the texts that are available to us, and we can compare them, and we can make a judicious decision as to what texts belong in the, in the Bible and which ones don't. And those are very rare that we ever have to do that. So we have no reason to doubt. We have no reason to cower before unbelievers and before their doubts and speculations that they hurl at us. We have no reason to fear them. We can stand confidently in the truth and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to them even in the midst of their questions because the truth is never afraid to be examined. And at the end of the day, Jesus Christ will reign. So, We need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. I hope this was helpful to some of you. <laughs> All right, Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the patience of your people. I thank you for the way that you have preserved us and strengthen our faith in the truth of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the way you continue to work in us and to shape and mold us into his image so that we become uh, uh, brighter reflections of Jesus' glory. Lord, I thank you for this church body. I thank you for their grace. I thank you for their mercy. I thank you for their patience. And I pray that you would pour upon them uh, blessings by your spirit and by your word, according to your truth, that they would know you more intimately and worship you with fuller hearts for the great glorious work that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us now as we sing our closing hymn. Amen. I'll give you a benediction from Psalm chapter 12 as you go forward this week. May this be a comfort to your hearts. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You will keep them, O Lord. You will preserve them from this generation forever. God will preserve his word for us. Let us put our hope and our trust in the God of this word. Father, we pray for that grace, and we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May you go in peace.